Hello, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and this week we begin sort of the big two-parter to wrap up the season. That's right, we're rapidly approaching the season finale, and we have tons and tons of uh, um, uh, material to talk about, lots of plot points that we got to wrap up this season. Um, obviously, we have like the central and most important plot point to cover this cover this week, which of course is the Ents and Yavanna and Awe. <laughs> based on based on uh, um, based on listener um, um, response and feedback in the discussion forums, that apparently is what people care about the most, and obviously <laughs> sort of the central plot point of the early part focus of the story. Group. The focus group called it. Yes, yes, that's right. Our, our, our focus groups have revealed to us that this is this is what people really want to see, so this is what we're going to give you. All of, in fact, we're we're the just, awakening of the Ents instead of the awakening of the Elves, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Actually, yes, we're going to make a huge change to the yeah, story. Yeah, we thought we'd make just a minor change. You know, we just we just, just up and replace the the Elves with Ents. I mean, that because... <laughs> That would be an improvement, right? I mean, who wouldn't like that? Just think how much longer the seasons it's will get to be. Want. That's right. Exactly, yeah. What people want is really slow-moving dialogue. That's what people really want. <laughs> we know how to That's please true. the audiences. If we did that, it would make this thing take, like, past our lifetimes, <laughs> right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Imagine, imagine, uh, imagine Feanor's speech... Right? Uh, Fanor's speech under torchlight in Tyrion, except delivered in Old Entish. Right? <laughs> and, and Fanor spoke for four and a half months. It would be great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I'm loving it. I am loving it. <laughs> okay, all right. But seriously, hi everybody. Welcome. Yes, we are. We are very excited as we're getting towards the end of the first season. Things are really heating up. And that's Corey Olson talking, by the way. Hi. I'm yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, there's some other people on the podcast besides me. Uh, <laughs> Corey Olson, you know. Yeah, we got distracted. It's okay. We all know who we are. I. I. I it's kind of. It would be. It'd be a bit of surprise to me if somebody. Jumped like, in on the film film podcast at episode fourteen. Like, you, know. you don't know who I am. Uh, well, no. <laughs> no it just I seems, am an executive producer. <laughs> exactly. Please, I, I have like a gold nameplate in front of my desk here. But no, uh, no. But uh, but rather, it's just kind of hard for me to imagine that season one, episode fourteen of the film film project will be the first thing anyone anyone ever listens to. But anyway, all right. So let's let's get back into things. First, there's one thing I wanted to make sure we didn't skim over. There's so much exciting stuff to talk about and so many major issues to move forward on. Uh, in fact, we have well, what I would say is possibly one of the most controversial, most difficult and complicated decisions of the entire film film project to make today. So how about that? Um, but uh, but anyway, uh, before we do that, I, I want to make sure we don't leave behind something. We last time we ran out of time. Um, we were talking about Ali and the Dwarves, and I was really happy with the story of Ali and the Dwarves that we came up with. I, I think that you know, sort of the way that we were picturing, the way that that scene was working in my head was awesome. With uh, with uh, you know, little robot Durin and and everything. It was, it was fantastic, and uh, Iluvatar speaking out of the out of the flames. Love it. Um, what we didn't get back to discussing last time, though, was the frame, and this is something we've been 
anticipating since the beginning that in the frame narrative, uh, in Estelle's frame narrative, this would be the point at which Bilbo and Thorin and company arrive at Rivendell on their way to the Lonely Mountain. Um, because the time, it's kind of, it's kind of why we chose Estelle to be the age that he is, because this is his age when, uh, uh, when they show up. So, um, you know, it works having him be a child and, uh, and everything, but it also, uh, it is fun for this reason too. So, um, so my, 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 my question here, we don't need to spend ages on this, uh, uh, and and sort of articulate everything that happens in the frame. But basically, I do want to think for a second, how do we handle the meeting with the dwarves? And, I mean, basically, it would be really easy to handle the sort of transition from the frame in real in a really hokey way. And I, I, I want to think about how we do that in a way that isn't hokey. Um, you know, like, I mean, we could have him meet the dwarves and, and be, like... What prompts it? I mean, the, the the connection, of course, between the arrival of the dwarves and the telling of the story of the of the of the origins of the dwarves is an obvious enough connection. But but how do we actually handle that? First of all, how would we want to handle their interaction? Do we have Estelle interact with them? Um, do we have him just watch them? And if so, what are his impressions? How do we have the dwarves act? I mean, again, as I assume we're not going to be having them m- making nude pyramids in the fountain, but uh, <laughs> wh- how do we have them act? You know, do we have... Uh, do we show distrust from them to the elves? Do we show... Because that's... Uh, I mean, uh, the dwarves think them ridiculous, the hobbit says. Which, of course, the narrator informs us is a ridiculous thing to think. Or, uh, you know, th- think them silly, and that's a silly thing to think. Too. So, uh, you know, they seem to dismiss them, but not to be actively hostile to them. Um, and yet Marie is right to point out that the dwarves are very reserved uh, and, uh, uh, and secretive. Um, so them kind of keeping to themselves and not wanting to talk a lot does seem in character, I agree. Uh, Marie also points out that Thorin is far too important a dwarf to have conversations uh, with adolescent boys. Um, I agree, though, as, of course, as Marie points out, Bilbo, on the other hand, might perhaps not be. Um, That's what I was thinking. I was thinking he could meet Bilbo. I mean, he may not even meet a dwarf, but he could get, and this would be kind of like almost a meta frame where right. he meets Bilbo, and Bilbo and, talks about them. Right, they talk about the dwarves. I mean, because, of course, Bilbo would still be in the framework of... I mean, even at the end of the story, he's still kind of yeah. separate from the dwarves yeah. and thinking the dwarves yeah, are weird. Yeah. And, um, and when he first meets them, assuming that we're meeting them when they're coming through on their way out to the Lonely Mountain, Bilbo's still in his, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Yeah, he's, st- he, he's still a noob. And remember how delighted he is at Rivendell, right? I mean, uh, remember yes. the, the, the sequence of that. I'm just, I'm actually right now in my annual reread of The Hobbit and just read chapter three yesterday. And, um, and it's, um, I, which, which means I finished my annual reread of The Silmarillion, so I'm no longer actively confusing oh, myself uh, with uh, reading The Shaping of Middle-Earth. Like and... I'm so, so low. Not to mention all the other things. You know, oh, and I finished this series. I did my annual reread of that series. I'm like, God, how does he do that? <laughs> audiobooks. Audiobooks. Uh, Four to uh, six hours of audiobooks a day. That's how I do it. But anyway, um, uh, I'm also reading Boswell's Life of Samuel Johnson for the first time, but that's totally irrelevant. Um, so, okay, okay. All right, so point is, Bilbo is 
shocked. Like he's so you know he, we. Bilbo's been in culture shock, right? He's been swept up into this sort of Tookish adventure. We see in chapter two how as he's getting into increasingly wild right through into the Lone Lands and where people sing songs that he's never heard before and then he meets the trolls, right? Um, you know, things are getting more and more alien. He is more and more outside of his hobbitly comfort zone. And then he comes to Rivendell and the striking thing about his time at Rivendell is that he loves it there. And he loves it even better than his home. He, he he would stay there. He would gladly have stopped there forever and ever, even if a wish could have taken him straight back to his hobbit hole, right? We see him wishing again and again to be back in his hobbit hole with the kettle just beginning to sing. But his satisfaction, his, uh, his happiness at being in Rivendell actually trumps that Baggins-ish desire to be home by his hearth. So, um, so that's the state that Bilbo's in, right? Um, in wonder and satisfaction and delight. So Bilbo's going to be happy and, I would think, friendly. And I absolutely agree with Marie that Bilbo would be highly likely to... I mean, like, basically, Bilbo hanging out and talking to Estelle in Rivendell would be kind of like Pippin hanging out with Burgil in, uh, in Minas Tirith. Not exactly the same, because Burgil and Pippin are closer in age. You know, Pippin is still... You know he's a he's 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 still a tween, right? I mean he's uh, um, he's 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 not even thirty yet, so he's still kind of like a teenager in mentality. Um, whereas Bilbo's fifty, right? When he's meeting Estelle, so th- there's not the same right. kind of the same kind of uh, uh, peer. But exactly, Brian, that's the problem I'm having. I like this. I like this way of thinking. I love the idea of spending time even... Yeah, I, th- I would think in the Alley and the Dwarves episode, we could squeeze in something like 10 minutes, maybe. Um, five to 10 minutes of Rivendell frame. Um, and show... You know, you know, we, we could have you know, Estelle sees the dwarves arriving. I would actually love to show the scene where the elves are teasing the dwarves. Like, see the elves singing on the far <laughs> side of the bridge. And like we and can, Elf, watching. Yeah, like don't 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 dip your beard in the foam, father. Right, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, just you know to have some of the some of the elves just like having fun and being silly uh, as the Rivendell's elves do in the Hobbit. It, that could be fun. I still could be standing by uh, Elrond watching the elves do that, and he yeah. could be saying, "What what is that?" And Elrond's like, "Ooh, it appears we have guests." Yes. <laughs> Those are dwarves, exactly. Um, And then he meets Bilbo and stuff, but but exactly, the question that Brian was just asking is exactly the problem that I was having. How do we get from Bilbo to the story? Right, um, you know how do how, how do we how do they how do we do that? Brian has the interesting suggestion that uh, Bilbo and Estelle together could listen to the same story. That's a good idea. Because um, I mean, eventually they get to Elrond. I wouldn't be Elrond telling the story, right? Elrond's yeah, I. It, I, I I think it's got to be. I mean, yeah. there's a part of me that really likes the concept that the dwarves tell the story because nobody really knows the origin of the dwarves. So that, like, the true dwarf origin story is known to the dwarves and told by the dwarves. But I, we can't do that. I mean, there's just... No, I, 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 how would that happen? I mean, what, what, are, are they going to get, like, Thorin roaring drunk and then, and then have him tell the story? I mean, under <laughs> what circumstances would any of the dwarves actually cough up that no, story to an elf? You know, under the, it's just... I can't see it. Um, and besides which, we may not even know the real story because the Silmarillion is written by elves. Right. Right. right exactly. That, uh, yes, exactly. The story that we're telling might not even be 
the true story of the origin right. of the dwarves. That's it's right. just what the elves tell. But anyway, anyway. Um, okay, so... Um, uh, 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 oh, Marie, I like that. Yeah, that uh, Estelle could ask Bilbo if he's a dwarf. And if so, what happened to his beard? Oh, and then and then great. Bilbo could talk, <laughs> and, and like, why are you wearing that hat that doesn't fit you? Um, but uh, <laughs> do you need a new great. hat? Because we could probably get you a new hat. Uh, I, um, anyway, yeah. So that's that's that would be that would be that would be cool. Um, I, I, I Marie, I love that as a transition. You know, like the basically uh, to think of Aragorn in Bilbo's first interaction being with uh, Aragorn asking him like. By the way, the, fan, the Tolkien fans are going nuts for this. I think, oh, yeah. I think they would love it. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, oh, I, like... we have to do it. I mean, it's not just that we have to do this. Like, we have to do this for our own sake. I mean, that this is <laughs> this is uh, the... the, the, the consolation, right? The level of self-indulgence here is <laughs> fully justified. I mean, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, if, if if personal satisfaction rises above a certain level, then self-indulgence is completely justified. Obviously. I mean, that's just... <laughs> it goes without saying. Uh, <laughs> hey, it's, it's always good when you when something is, is self-justifying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is one of the places where it's really delightful not to have to care what people actually think. So, um, so yeah, that's great. So, so we do this. Um, but again, transitioning to the story... Um, so we, so I get, you know, we could do something like, so he asked Bill if he's a dwarf, he finds out that Bilbo is not a dwarf. And this, of course, since he's raised that as the issue, they, the, they're talking about dwarves already, right? So that's an easy transition into the two of them having a conversation about the dwarves and him asking like, you know, what are they like? And Bilbo giving some of his comments and reflections on the dwarves, um, and how they, you know, they, uh, you know, but not just sort of about them seeming adventurous. I mean, he can say some of the things that we get, you know, within The Hobbit, the depiction of the dwarves at the beginning, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Their fixation on their treasure and, you know, which he, like, kind of can appreciate. Like, you remember his moment of sympathy after after their song. But at the same time, he, he kind of doesn't sympathize with that. You know, I mean, he does, in fact, remember value... Uh, you know, food and, and, and song above hoarded wealth. So he, he, he doesn't totally get the whole, we must reclaim our treasure imperative, you know, though he's going along with the treasure hunt. Um, Plus given how much Bilbo thinks about food in the Hobbit, um, he can complain that they ate him out of house and home. Right. Yes. Yes. And that they've been starving because they lost all their food in the river and, and, uh, you know, and they, he's just been eating like cold roast mutton for the last couple of days. And he so, almost got eaten. Yeah, by... exactly, exactly by trolls. So like, no, he doesn't <laughs> have to tell the whole story. I mean, we can't we can't indulge ourselves in a whole retelling of no, the Hobbit no. because we're going to do but that I, anyway. So you know, we'll I think you could do that. Ourselves. I think Bilbo could like do do this monolo- very fast monologue, you know, very huffy kind of monologue in a very short space with right. Estelle just kind of like round eyed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Estelle doesn't have to be able to process it all because we will be able to process it. Like, yeah, you right. know, we who have read The Hobbit will know all the things he's talking about. So even if Estelle right. is confused, it's fine. It, 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 right. it doesn't matter. He can right. kind of remain confused. And even at the end of that, especially at the end of that, he goes, let's go talk to Elrond. <laughs> right. <laughs> after, after listening to Bilbo. Yeah. Actually, his confusion <laughs> itself. 
uh, could sort of could be what leads him. So he so he has this kind of bewildering conversation with Bilbo, um, and Bilbo. Right. I could actually I could easily see Bilbo making the kind of good natured mistake of thinking that since Estelle lives here in Rivendell among the elves and everything, that even though he's obviously a child. He probably knows all this stuff, right? You know that Bilbo yeah, is, yeah. is, you know, he 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 still feels very much like the noob in this world, and makes the assumption that Estelle knows way more than he does, and is already familiar with dwarves because everybody out in this wide adventuring right. world knows about that kind of thing, right? And um, Bilbo could put the whole thing totally in context of himself. Like, what are dwarves? Dwarves are these pesky creatures who show up uninvited and eat you <laughs> and almost get you eaten. And you know, I mean, he just could do right. that, you know. And Estelle's like. Whoa. Okay. Well, I think I'll go ask him once. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that. So yeah. So then Estelle goes, and and he's like, you know, so that 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 could lead him then to ask about the like sort of the, the straight up, right. the, you know, the straight story of the dwarves and 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 how that works. So, um, ooh, Maria. Marie says, does he think that Estelle is an elf? I like that, Marie. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, so so Estelle mistakes Bilbo for a dwarf and and uh, uh, and then he mistakes Estelle for an elf yeah for, for an elf for a young elf yeah well yeah. that makes sense that's totally would make sense they wouldn't expect to see it a, a human yeah non dwarf or non elf yeah. yeah yeah which means that would give Bilbo the more excuse for us because then he wouldn't even necessarily necessarily right. think that he's a child or at least that he's young right uh, he wouldn't wouldn't right. actually get that he's only what twelve um, so okay yeah. Yeah, like it, like it. Um, okay, good. So that's that's that, that that's exactly that's exactly the kind of self indulgent conversation I wanted to have about the frame. Um, now <laughs> we can <laughs> move back to the more difficult stuff. Okay, so it is time for us to address the big question. It's times like these, I wish we had a soundtrack for this show. Yes, I, I need you know, some kind of like ominous down. stinger or something. Yes. you know that that is yes. played here, because <laughs> we've got to we've got to talk about this both. So all these things are tied together. Um, the sequence of the awakening of the elves and the nature of the orcs. Um, the nature of the orcs is a very fraught question. Um, because it was very fraught to Tolkien himself. Um, and my own reading of Tolkien's troubles with this is basically it's... Tolkien started with goblins, okay? He started with goblins in The Hobbit. And he already had orcs, of course, in The Silmarillion. But basically, in The Silmarillion... They're monsters. They're made out of stone and slime and hatred. Um, one part stone, two parts slime, three parts sure hatred. About those proportions. Exactly. Yeah, I think so. Well, I've not experimented, but you know, uh, uh, and people keep varying the recipe. But anyway, the 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 um, uh, yeah. So um. Anyhow, that, that they were they were basically concocted by Melkor in the uh, the old Silmarillion stuff, the stuff the Silmarillion stuff that Tolkien wrote pre Hobbit, um, and you can see that that's kind of of a piece with the way that the goblins are depicted in the Hobbit itself. That is, in the Hobbit, they're just 
fairy tale monsters, right? I mean, he's just they're, they're goblins, yeah. right? I mean, it's just part. He 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 in that sense hasn't really fully kind of naturalized them, or rather, he has not yet fully. You know, as the more he fully thinks through his world, um, and uh, and I will add, um. And this is sort of serves as a as a sideline, as a little plug for the shaping of Middle Earth class. Um, the shaping of Middle Earth class that I'm doing right now in the Mythgard Academy has been awesome. That has been one of the most eye opening experiences I have had. I have learned more in doing this class. Um, I mean, because I've read the history of Middle Earth stuff before, but I keep forgetting it, and I, I it's I've never <clears throat> I've never had a more sort of thorough uh, kind of I've never done such a thorough study of it um, as when I've been teaching it this past time, which is why I've been loving this series so much. And holy cow, it's um, uh, it's been amazing. Uh, the the concept of the I've never had a clearer view of the emergence of the Silmarillion in Tolkien's mind as studying the shaping of Middle Earth this time. Just unbelievable stuff. Um, and I've also decided, by the way, that, that the 1930 Quenta is my favorite Silmarillion. Like that's that's huh. that's my favorite Silmarillion. Um, I actually like it better than the published Silmarillion in some ways. Um, it is awesome. Love the Quenta. But anyhow, um, the 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 point that I would make, and I, I'm not going to go over it in too much detail because I just spent like multiple hours on this over the last few weeks in the shaping of Middle Earth class. But um, but basically, it's right at the time of the Hobbit, right in the 30s when Tolkien is really doing his first elaborations of the Silmarillion world. That is, the stories existed, right? He had the Book of Lost Tales. But there he was, like, recounting legends. Um, he hadn't really sat... Like, it's it's in the 30s when he begins to sit down and do things like draw detailed maps and write up a chronology, you know, an, a year-by-year chronology of how things happen. That is, he's really beginning to do more world-building, rather than just storytelling. Um, it's not that he'd done no world-building, of course, and you can see the Lost Tales you know, still have a, a, a really well-integrated cosmos behind them. But we don't have evidence of him actually sitting down and like working on his world-building, right? But that's what the Embarcanta is, that's what all those maps are about, that's what the Annals are about, him fleshing out the world in ways that he'd never fleshed out the world before. So when he invents the Oryx, it's not part of that real world building process. They're 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 a feature, and again, they have background and stuff. But, um, but basically, my underst- my my reading of it is the more he did flesh it out, and of course, that kind of goes to the next level when he's writing the Lord of the Rings, his development of the world and his fleshing out of the world. Um, increasingly, the more he thinks about it, the bigger <clears throat> of a problem he has <clears throat> with having the orcs be these constructs, you know, made up of slime and stone and hatred. So he, you know, because he doesn't, you know, he, 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 rec- he realizes there's basically, you know, among other things, there's theological implications, right, of, of Melkor being able to make, if the orcs are not to be automata, they have to be independent creatures and have souls or something in some sense. And how can Melkor just make that? How can, you know, how is that possible? So he decides that it isn't possible, and that's then what leads to the paradigm shift, which is that orcs are actually corrupted elves, because only Iluvatar can make things with souls, and 
and so the and the orcs seem to have souls, so they're going to be corrupted elves. But that, of course, in turn, is that's not a perfect solution by any stretch. As in his later career, he um, he uh, was more and more concerned about um, because, of course, if they are souls and if they are corrupted elves, then you would think that they would have free will of some kind. Um, and so, how is it that they can be as orcs are? Um, as 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 orcs are depicted throughout all of Tolkien's writings as merely and simply evil, they are the only um, they are the only characters in Tolkien which are black and white, um, which are, you know are not don't even seem to have good impulses. <clears throat> How could Melkor destroy the? sovereignty of choice of a child of Iluvatar to that extent? How could they be perverted to that extent? And even in The Lord of the Rings you can begin to see some hints of Tolkien grappling with that problem. Um, I'm thinking here in particular of the scene at the Black Gate when Sauron wrenches his mind away from everything in my like favorite sentence of the Lord of the Rings, that really long sentence when, you know, so, from all his webs of, 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 from all his policies and webs of fear, the, the mind of Sauron shook free. Um, that sentence. And his, uh, and his armies suddenly steerless, bereft of will, right? His captains suddenly, so, suddenly steerless, bereft of will. So like the, 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 basically the orcs all stand around like, uh, what do we do now? because Sauron's no longer dominating them. So the idea appears to be, that is to say, one way out of the whole free will question is that the free will of orcs is being consistently overridden by the will of Morgoth and then Sauron. That they might... That that means the logical extension of this idea would be that an orc theoretically could choose to be good if it wanted to. It would be unlikely due to its, you know, sort of uh, uh, environment, its nurture, right? It's due to its environment. I'd be really unlikely to repent, but theoretically, it would be possible. Except it is being it is being enslaved by the will of Morgoth, and then later the will of Sauron. Um, that's that's the. that's one way to kind of try to but even that's not fully satisfying because you'd think that some orc somewhere might be able to you know it would at least introduce a question of doubt Um, they would at least talk about the good guys that is would at least raise the issue of hey shouldn't we be freeing the orcs instead of you know exterminating them right but everybody just talks about exterminating them um so, which is cool if they're constructs, less cool if they are corrupted or the descendants of corrupted uh, children of Iluvatar. Uh, so, what then do we do? And again, the challenge here is that Tolkien himself never resolved this question. He didn't himself have a perfect solution to this problem. Um... Now here's so the, let's fix it for him. So let's fix it for well, yeah. I mean, that's kind of it's, that's this is part of the job we've taken on ourselves, right? Uh, yeah. So okay. 
Now, of course, as to the... So, just to make it explicit, um, it's kind of ironic that we have to talk about this now because we're not going to have orcs. No matter what happens, we're not going to have orcs in the in episode 13. Like, orcs are not going to take part in this war. Um, so, we're not going to need an orc until season two. Uh, and so it makes me feel particularly aggrieved that I can't kick the can further down the road and wait until season two to talk about this. <laughs> but of course we can't, because it is pivotal to the question yeah. of the timing of the awakening of the elves. If the elves, if the orcs are going to be corrupted elves, they must awaken, they must be around prior to the chaining of Melkor, or he won't have time to, to take them. Um, now, that on the timing question, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but just to refresh everybody's memory, the, in, there are two different versions of this. In the original story, in the Book of Lost Tales, the elves don't awaken until after the chaining of Melkor. Um, the, the, the sequence is the Valar understand that it's almost time, like the, the children are going to be born any time now, and they don't want to leave Morgoth at large, or Melkor at large, uh, uh, to screw things up, so they do a preemptive strike on Melkor, and they take him prisoner, and they chain him up, and then Varda puts the stars in the heavens, and at that point, the elves wake up. So that's the um, that's the sequence in the Book of Lost Tales. The sequence in the Silmarillion, of course, is different. That Orame finds them, the elves. Um, okay, no, the full sequence would... It's not the way that it's described, but the full sequence would be the elves awaken. Morgoth finds them and takes some of them to turn them into orcs down the road. Then Orame finds them and says, hey, look, elves. And so he goes back to the Valar and says, hey, look, there are elves over there. Um, and then Orome goes back, and, and then the elves are like, oh, or the Valar are like, oh, we should go chain Melkor so that he doesn't like do anything bad uh, to the to the elves, because, you know, we'd hate to see that happen, right? Um, so Orome goes back to, you know, gives the elves, and he's like, okay, uh, hang on. Well, we'll be right back. Um, and then they go and they fight. So, like, off in the distance, there's this enormously cataclysmic fight against Morgoth, which kind of freaks the elves out. Um, and then afterwards, Mor- uh, Orome comes back to them and says, all right, uh, we're good. Come to Valinor. Um, that's the sequence, roughly, in the published Silmarillion. Okay? So, um, really, I, I, my goal had been to push the elves back entirely to season two. I was kind of leaning towards an, an implementation of the Lost Tales sequence. But I realized that that basically predetermines the whole origin of orcs question, and I realize now that I was only doing that because I was just wanting not to think about this until next season. <laughs> so, it was it, it, it was an act of cowardice, I confess it. So, okay. Um, but I do have I do have one very clear idea. At least we can count on you to come clean. You know, eventually. <laughs> I, I, I confess, I'm sorry. So, okay. Um, <laughs> So, right, okay, so one clear idea that I have. We can still preserve the whole emphasis of Season 2. I mean, I would have liked to sort of save Orame and the elves until the beginning of Season 2. But I thought of a way that we can. Um, We can do both, basically. Um, Season 1, of course, is from the Valar's point of view. 
we can find the el- the elves, and the elves can awaken. I would want to save the major interaction with the elves and like the embassy to Valinor and you know all that stuff. None of that stuff needs to happen until the next season. Um, but but the initial finding of them. And I would want to not spend any time with the elves on screen. That is, we can show them. We can show Orame finding them. Or maybe that even happens off screen. How tantalizing would that be? Orame just comes into the Council of the Valar who are talking about something else, and Orame shows up in Valinor and is like, holy cow, I found the elves! Um, and, and, it's a, and, and a big to-do is made. And we never even see the elves on screen until next time. That would be that would be like a really gutsy way to do it. Or we could show them on screen, yeah. but only briefly, and we again, we don't really spend any screen time with them. Then what we do is in Season 2, we come back, but the story is told from the elvish point of view in Season 2. So it's, 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 it's totally an elf perspective um, from Episode 1 of Season 2. So Season 2, Episode 1, begins with the Awakening at Quivienne, and um, and not necessarily Orame right away in the first uh, in the first episode, but basically it's well, okay helps. to kind of rewind the clock a little bit because we'd be telling that retelling that story from the, the completely different perspective of the elves instead of the Valar. Okay, yeah, actually that that, that would work. That that would work pretty good. We might be able to have our cake and eat it too. That's exactly that my plan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Plenty of cake involved in this. Uh, uh, in that in that in that sequence, um, <laughs> that, okay, that would be pretty. That would be pretty satisfying. It's still like I, I think we. Yeah, I think we could even still do like our our end of season, you know, sort of dramatic shot of Quivienne and the elves yes. waking up or whatever. But yes. yeah, I like that idea a lot of like finishing this season with with like a bang with the with the war and, yes. and action and then starting next season like and and with an emphasis on the the the, the Valar as as the characters and then like having next season begin with like a, a, an extended shot maybe and maybe this is all like a, a cold opening um, you know before we even roll credits like starting next season with like an extended thing where we show the elves waking up and it's like a lot more you know it's a, it's a lot, lot less dra- lot less dramatic um, no action you know it's like a lot of, it's more sort of subdued and quiet right maybe there's there isn't even really dialogue yet because the elves aren't necessarily talking like that, I think that actually that could be quite nice yeah yeah me too um, uh, though we do have uh, some room for drama of course if uh-huh. Melkor is indeed kidnapping and torturing some of them. Because um, remember, yeah. that's yeah. the story in the published Silmarillion, that when Orome first shows up, many of the elves are afraid. And some of them actually... That's like what, why some of them stay. You know, that's why it's like the initial cause of the divide among the elves, is that some of them are just freaked out and are, are terrified, because... Guessing that Orame would be the first of the Valar to find them, Melkor uh, had like there were like these dark riders, right? These you know this terrifying godlike creatures on horseback, um, in order to hopefully prevent them from responding positively to Orame if he ever does show up. Mm-hmm. So, the idea of them being stalked and 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 living by the lake in fear, or at least having fear you know, having, you know, this terror and uncertainty intruding upon them as they're there by Quivienne is, I mean, God, that's 
like episode one, right? Of uh, of, yeah. of of season two of, of season two. So Orme doesn't even need to show up until episode two or three, actually. If we if we do that out, um, now this this is renewing my temptation to delay the orc question. Um, oh, finally. But I don't think we can. Okay, so here's here are my thoughts on the orc question. Uh, you know, maybe. Because at the very least, I'm thinking we don't depict it until season two. Um, yes. Uh, I think we have to have it thought through. I mean, I do. Think but we yeah, but we do need to think it through. So, but doesn't but that that doesn't mean we have to think it through right this instant. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm going to bad, let's 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 uh, bad, bad let's take. Uh, uh, let us let us let us take our courage uh, uh, in both hands and uh, uh, <laughs> move forward here. So, um, if we just do it, if we do it in either of the two, like basically, I think, I think that we will run into trouble. Like, why should we run ourselves into the same... On the one hand, it seems, Dave, as you were suggesting before, a little bit uh, uh, sort of crazy or hubristic to be like, let's solve Tolkien's problems for him. You know, like, Tolkien couldn't figure it out, but we can, right? Uh, And I understand that seems a little dodgy. Um, But at the same time, it seems a little... more than a little foolish to say, let us deliberately... And with full knowledge of forethought, run ourselves into the same dilemma that Tolkien did, right? Having seen Tolkien, you know, like why should we do that, right? Um, yeah. So, so to do either of to to merely do either of those two options to have the orcs be constructed out of inanimate materials, uh, or to have the orcs be elves, just be elves who are captured and warped and twisted and enslaved. Either one of those, we know they lead to problems. Tolkien has taught them, taught us that both of those two things lead to problems. So why should we do that? Let's not do that. So what else do we do? Right? Um, we, uh, we have to do we have to do something. Now, Maria is suggesting I, I, there, is, there is another possibility. Right? Um, and I would, uh, by the way, I would uh, commend uh, Mithluin gave an awesome discussion of this. Mithluin oh, is, yeah. has been great for for, uh, for she's been a mainstay of the discussion board for weeks. Her discussion of the of the issue with soul, with orcs and souls was 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 a really really good one. I, I just wanted to, to to really commend that uh, her her analysis there, which I think which seemed to me spot on. Um, basically, the, the the way that she kind of talked about it was there has to be a source for souls right mm-hmm. um and uh, uh the, the problem is melkor can't make a soul um but that's not just to say that he necessarily and, and we do have this other precedent right there is one other model for how a sentient living creature comes about other than you take something pre-made by a Luvatar and 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 enslave it, or you construct it yourself from scratch from a mail order kit, right? There, there there has to be, there is in fact within Tolkien's works a third method, and that's the method that Morgoth uses with the dragons and apparently with the werewolves as well. 
That is, you take, on the one hand, you take a living creature, like an animal, and you take a spirit, like a, one of the lesser Maya, and you fuse them, right? You like, take your Hroa from over here and your Fea from over there, to use the, uh, to use the technical terms, your Hroa is your body, your Fea is your spirit, in elfish terms. Um, so you, you've got all these Fea floating around, right? These Maya and everything, and you, you take them and you put them in, you, 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 you cram them in a Hroa, and Bob's your uncle. You've got yourself a sentient beast. You've got, you've got Glaurung, right? That appears to be where Glaurung came from. Um, Tolkien doesn't state this clearly, but it seems implied. It seems suggested. Um, uh, Sharon asks, is Huan such a sentient beast? That's a great question. It does not... Uh, I, I mean... <clears throat> Huan's origin is even less clear, right, as far as, like, the mechanics of Huan's origin. I mean, he's a hound of Valinor. Does that mean that just, like, dogs in Valinor are highly intelligent, magical, and perfectly sentient? Like... Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know exactly. Could it be that Huan is... I mean, we know that all of the uh, Valar have their <clears throat> sort of flocks of Maya who are associated with them, and the idea that Orome, the hunter, and the lord of hunters, would be... Uh, you know, that his Maya would be Maya associated with the hunt and would manifest themselves in physical forms of hounds seems like a totally obvious thing for them to do, right? Just as the spirit, it would be a very natural thing for the spirits of Manway to manifest themselves as birds, right? Right. So, we could have Huan be... Not, but, 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 Sharon, here's my, here's my reservation. My reservation is, like, Glaurung is kind of, like, the, the... The products of Morgoth's R&D department are kind of abominable, right? I mean, it's, it's, um, it's really not kosher what Morgoth does in his, with his research and development people. Um, so it's hard for me to imagine that, like, yeah, so, like, thrusting a Fea into a powerful Hroa in order to make this, like, monstrous combination... Um, hard for me to imagine that like both Orome and Melkor are basically doing the same thing, just one of them you know, kindly and in a friendly fashion, and the other one with malice aforethought like, well, I, but the other thing is, is, is it Morgoth I mean, one of the things about Morgoth is that he depletes his own what, spirit, own, energy, yes, exactly, whatever exactly. where the others don't and I, I think the argument about like Huan, for example, being a Maya who's chosen to be a hound is true, but Morgoth's actually infusing himself into these R&D Right, things, exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's and that's true of the that's true of the orcs as well. So yeah, it's that it would be in some sense only by his own power that this right. would kind of hold together, right? Um, that's important to show, by the way, at some point. Yeah, you know, that that's what's happening is that he's having to, you know, use a piece of they're horcruxes, I suppose you could say, like or it. not. Yeah, no, no, you're right. <laughs> you're right in the sense that, um, it, it, with this difference, right? 
the whole idea of a horcrux, and of course that idea is a very traditional fairy tale idea of being able to put right. some of your life into an object so as to preserve it and or make yourself immortal, right? Or at least make yourself unkillable by having your mortal essence concealed in a in an object right. which is which can then be hidden and then nobody can kill you because they wouldn't think to dig up the whatever it is. And anyway, so yeah, that the idea, the concept, of, but but again. The point of the Horcrux... It's different, though. He's, exactly. He's not, it's almost the opposite, right? is not an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's already immortal. He's not trying to increase his own personal power or, or make himself more formidable. He's making himself less formidable, actually, personally, in order to distribute his power, you know, more widely and sort of enforce it more widely. Um, well, it's kind of like his version of making himself more formidable. In other words, in his mind, he's making himself more formidable by creating these legions of monsters, right? But in fact, he's depleting himself. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's limiting himself. Whereas Huan, for instance, and, uh, and uh, uh, Diane, don't worry, we're not for a moment contemplating on removing Huan. Um, <laughs> no way, never. are you kidding? We're going to have, like... At least three episodes just on Huan. Are you kidding? I'm going to go out of my way to invent subplots that we can bring Huan into. <laughs> if yeah. you think I'm going to wait till the Baron and Luthien story to introduce Huan as a major character in the Silmarillion, oh, yeah. no Definitely. way, man. Absolutely. Like he, should, he should be with Orme. I mean, he should have a part in the Orme discovering of the elves. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> What'd you find, boy? Where'd you go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Huan, uh, Huan, Huan is going to get. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Huan, Huan begins with cameo appearances in in episode two of season two. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Oh yeah, no worries, absolutely. no worries. Plenty of Huan. But the point is, the, the point is simply the difference, right? The difference between Huan and Glaurung, say, right? Um, and that the one, the one is like an unclean abomination which requires an outpouring of Melko's own will in order to make it happen and to sustain it. Right. Whereas Huan exists as, if anything, an act of self-sacrifice on his own part. Just like Melian goes to Middle-earth and binds herself to Thingol, right? Out of out of selfless generosity, right, binds herself to Thingol, uh, and um, and become you know she doesn't become mortal, but she does seem to be bound. Like she doesn't return to Valinor until he dies, right? Um, she restricts herself in what seems like a more radical way to her physical body um, in order to bind herself to Thingol, and so I would see Huan's manifestation in the form of a hound. As that I would see Huan as a Maya uh, who has uh, has bound himself like Melian, not in a sexual or romantic way, but uh, but 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 for similar reasons of of love, right? right? Um, and he doesn't have to be the only one. I mean, the whole pack could be Maiar, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I would think that Huan would be... Not that Huan wouldn't be something special, but that he has right. a lot of company. Maybe, maybe the Alpha. <laughs> yeah, maybe he is. Or I actually, I, I kind of like the idea that he's not even the Alpha, right? Uh, you know, it, it kind oh, of... That, that That would actually be a kind of a... a, a a, a fit kind of Tolkienian perception of depth thing, right? To find, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to see how awesome Huan is, but then have this sort of reminder, like, he's not even the alpha of his pack. You know, back in power right. or, or a maze pack. And so, anyway, yeah. Uh, so, anyway, okay. Okay, so, um, 
But by the way, the other thing I just wanted to say is um, we have been actually taught about this having to put your will into your creations through the Owlay story. Yes. So yes, you know we already know that. So 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 then it won't be like Melkor having to do that becomes like oh yeah that's right he would have to be doing that. So it's the viewers will know that already. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So so how does this help us with the orc problem? Um, if we imagine then, that the orcs are not simply elves, um, elves that he has tortured until they become evil, or however exactly it works, the enslavement of their will. Instead of just making them elves, they could be, and this was, this was, uh, like, one of the, like, potential solutions that Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien had envisioned the possibility of orcs being connected to, to sort of spirits like this. The problem is there are too many of them, and they have to be able to reproduce. Um, I mean, reproduction is kind of a big thing among orcs, right? Yeah. And I agree with... Multiply uh, like flies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that the, the fecundity of the orcs is one of the things yes. that Morgoth is, is particularly interested in. Um, and one of, the, one of the, the primary kind of uh, uh, blessings that he would... That he would give now, and Nick, of course, is right that um, uh, Meyer can reproduce in embodied forms. We have Melian as an example of that, but they have to reproduce with something, right? And this um, is some place that we are also going to differentiate ourselves from Game of Thrones. We are not going to show that on screen. No, no. Yeah, I forget who it was on the discussion board who was like, uh, you know, uh, uh, stating like the, the, like the solemn pact that there. we will never depict. Uh, any form right. of orc breeding on screen. Totally agree. Absolutely agree. We don't want to go there. Um, uh, but um, Sharon asks an excellent question, so we're going to have to at least see female orcs. Um, yeah, I actually think it would be interesting for us. To, we may get the opportunity. I think we will get the opportunity to kind of think through orc society a little bit more. Um, to actually imagine how orcs live and, uh, and and all that kind of thing, we're going to spend enough time with them in the stories that we have that we're you know I think we're we're going to be able to do that. But that time has not yet come. We're still dealing with their origins. Maya can reproduce. Melian does, but she reproduces with an elf, and the child that she has is not another Maya. The child that she has is an elf who still has divine blood right there's you know there's the significance of the of the, the 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 power that luthien has because she is of divine race but she's an elf who is of divine race so if the uh it, you know it, it's hard to see i mean i don't think we can imagine um it's way t- this can't just be a pure maya situation can it because if he if he makes like the prototype orc right, um, you know who can be whatever can be bulldog or whoever bulldog is uh, uh, an orc, the orc captain he gets mentioned in the Lay of Lathian, for instance, uh, who is uh, uh, one of the like the generals of the orc armies, um, one of the earliest named orcs. Um, so anyway, we we imagine like the orc version of Durin, right? Um, the prototype orc. If if Morgoth makes the prototype orc, uh, we still have to give it a body, 
from something. Not quite sure where the body comes from, but he starts with a body, an animal body of some kind, and he puts a Maya spirit in it, and bammo, we have, you know, uh, the prototype orc, who can be greater and more powerful than other orcs, and all the orcs can be like the lesser spawn of Captain Prototype Orc. Um, but he still needs somebody else to mate with. So what happens? We get, like, Prototype B, right? Uh, uh, the Eve of the Orcs that then Morgoth makes, and then he mates them together, which we don't show on screen, and then they have, what? Maya children? Right? If, if both of if we, if, you know, what, I guess dragons do this. Right? Oh, golly, this is complicated. We know that dragons reproduce. Well, okay. We don't have to know that, actually. We can avoid... The dragon reproduction, dragon breeding, but totally they lay avoidable. Eggs, don't they? Huh? Or at least... They lay eggs, don't they, dragons? Well, we in some traditions... Our currents. Yeah. Our, yeah, right. In some <laughs> traditions. Uh, but... Uh, I, I, the question of whether dragons are oviparous or viviparous, um, of course, predisposed. Pre- oh, now pre- you're just showing off. Presupp- Look at you. <laughs> I love those words. Uh, it presupposes <laughs> the initial question of are they parous at all? Like, do they ha- do they yeah, bear children? Right. Um, right. Tolkien implies it because he he mentions in the early Silmarillion stuff. This is in the uh, this is in I think the sketch the 1926 sketch of the Silmarillion and the 1930 Quenta. I know it's in the 1930 Quenta. Um, that at the end of the 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 War of Wrath, at the end of that when uh, Arendel and the birds come and take on the the winged dragons at the end. All of the dra- most of the orcs and all of the dragons are destroyed at the end of that battle except two which escape. And it is presumably from those two that are bred the other dragons that we meet, like the dragon that uh, that that Graham, the ancestor of the Rohirrim, fought Skatha the Worm, right, and Smaug, and uh, and uh, and all the other dragons that come into later le- legends, um, are bred from those two uh, from those two dragons. Um, now, like I said, we can avoid that problem. Um, we can avoid that problem by uh, um, having a finite number of dragons, as Brian suggests. Um, we could just we could just just enable more of them to escape from the War of Wrath. Like that's fine, but I guess that would mean yeah. Smaug would have to be there. That doesn't fit too well because Smaug from day one. Yeah, I mean, if Smaug is at the War of Wrath then he's already freaking ancient by the time he sacks Erebor, right? I mean, he's, right. This, he, he, he yeah. would not be appreciably he's, older by the time Bilbo comes to him. But he's described as, he's, he's described as like relatively young at yes, that time. Yes, yes, right? he, right. he is a young worm at that time. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Mark says, don't forget the wereworms. Mark, I'm still trying to forget the wereworms, okay? Like, it, <laughs> it hasn't worked yet, but I'm still trying. Uh... Um. Yeah. Uh, I know yeah. that put an Im- image into your head. You'll never ever be able to get rid of. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, fortunately, it's so like the images from Dune that it's fine. Like I already had That's that true. image in my yeah. head. I just didn't That's have true. it in the Hobbit. But anyway, whatever. Bygones. <laughs> um. So the. <laughs> the I, I I know it might seem that I'm getting far afield here. 
Um, and I am, but the but it's still all relevant to the point of the creation and reproduction of this kind of creature. If we're going to make orcs be similar in kind, if not similar in stature, because remember the dragons come later in the R and D process by Morgoth. Um, so it's easy to imagine him thinking of, like, basically he's done the orc experiment, and that worked pretty well. But remember, by the time he's producing the dragons, he's disappointed. The orcs are kind of, he's not exactly recalling them, right, but they're a disappointment. Because when he tries to, because the the, the Noldor just, like, wade through them, uh, you know, like a scythe through grass. Um, so it's clear that the orcs just, they're, they're not able to stand up to the elves. So from Morgoth's point of view, they're a failure on their own. So he wants to, he needs an upgrade. And so that's why he makes dragons. So it, it, it would be, it would be in keeping for us to basically have the dragon project be in Morgoth's mind. I'm going to do the same thing, but bigger, right? I'm going to get a bigger and more powerful Maya spirit, and I'm going to get a bigger and more powerful body, and we're going to put them together, and we're going to make, you know, a, 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 a creature which you know, is going to be a hundred times more potent than orcs. So, um, that can work. You know, that's, 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 I, I, this, 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 this could function. Um, but, um, but I'm still a little uncomfortable with the reproduction angle. Now, I should mention, of course, by the way, that, I needn't... We could go a little old school on this. Um, in the Book of Lost Tales, still in the 1930 Quenta, heck, still in the... like by the At the time he's writing The Hobbit, heck, at the, near the time he's publishing The Hobbit, he is still talking about Maya being children of the Valar. The Valar themselves are still reproducing. In fact, we were just discussing... Well, a little bit. We didn't discuss it too much. Um, but we were just discussing, the day before yesterday, the increasingly convoluted family tree of the Valar, where Orame is still Yavanna's son, and Orame's wife is like his aunt. Um, yeah, his aunt, Vanna, who is Yavanna's sister. Um... Like, they're all inbred, the Valar, because, you know, there's nobody else for them to marry. And so they're all marrying, like, their own aunts and, and uncles and cousins. And, uh, and by the way, in the, uh, in the, the earliest annals of, um, of Valinor, which is what we were discussing on Wednesday, Nienna is Manwe and Melkor's sister. Oh my goodness. Yeah? Huh? Nienna is mm. Manwe and Melkor's sister. Oh and that's that why she pleads for him to be released. Story. Yeah. Well, that makes... That, that uh-huh. would explain it. Yeah. Mm. Nepotism. That's why Nienna <laughs> pleads for And why Melkor she cries so be, much. Uh, yeah. Holy moly. Okay, anyway, sorry. Uh, just uh, this... This mind-blowing mo- moment brought to you by the earliest annals of Valinor. Uh, anyway, so the point is... <laughs> Now, I'm not suggesting we do that. I'm not suggesting we reinstate the uh, the the breeding of the Valar, which we also don't show on screen, um, which um, leads to because you know originally Aonwe, um, uh, it's who's the you know the, the herald of Manwe, as everybody recalls. I know you guys on the discussion boards were talking about Aonwe a lot. I love your Aonwe ideas, by the way, and we'll get around to them. Um, 
Ianwe was the son of Manwe. Like, the son of Manwe and Varda. Um, that was his role. That's what made him really special, because he was their son. He's a Maya, but he's, he's, he's their son. He's the son of Manwe and Varda. <clears throat> I'm not suggesting that we do that. My point is, if we do say that two Maya, especially if they're put into these, like, made the, 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 brought into unholy conjunction with Hroa, as Melkor is doing, the idea that they could breed and create, and through their breeding, bring about sort of new souls, which would be sort of more or less kind of of their order, but maybe lesser. Um, that's not unheard of. There's lots and lots of precedent for that, especially in Tolkien's early thinking um, in the Silmarillion material. Hmm. Now, here's the other possibility. The other possibility, and this, I believe, was uh, was what Mithluin was suggesting, and that is, um, uh, basically, that he is taking elf souls, not just taking elves, and sort of converting them forcibly as is, but rather that he sort of is he like necromantically extracts their souls and infuses those. So we don't have uh, bodies of things infused into uh, or infused with Maya. We have them infused with the uh, the souls of elves. And this, I, I, I had to quote this because I love the phrase. Mithluin speaks of the super secret taboo necromantic orc breeding program. Um, <laughs> which I think is fantastic. It's a little too bad that the, the, uh, the initials don't spell something cool, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> we can still work with it. Um, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> it's, it's, I kind of, in fact, just, uh, you know, Mithluin's tossing off of the word necromantic in that, uh, in that concept. I kind of like. We do get the whole necromancer business, you know, and we're going to have to do something with the necromancer business. We can't avoid the necromancer stuff. Like, we're going to have to have a reason for him to be called the necromancer, um, which means we have, like, two lines of the Lay of Lathian to expand into multiple episodes. That would make Sauron in charge of that program then, right? Aha! Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the ways in which he gets to call to be called... The necromancer. So, um, exactly as Nick was, Nick Palazzo was just anticipating, precisely. Um, so, I'm open to this idea. Um, here is, um, here's one problem. I'm not convinced that it wholly solves the orcs are corrupted elves problem. Um, yeah, I was going to say I, I'm not not a, these are all very interesting ideas, but I'm not sure any of these actually solve the problem. The Maya idea could solve the problem because you have there not an elf who is robbed of its free will. You have instead mm-hmm. a Maya who is cho- who is chosen. And what about the Maya babies? You ask. Well, shoot. Okay, they still have a problem, don't they? Well. Rat. <laughs> it seems like it seems like the the orcs reproducing actually actually is 
potentially the thorniest problem here. It, it really is, and we just can't avoid it. We can avoid showing it, but we can't avoid it's happening. I mean, we we absolutely cannot have, like, you know, the orc assembly line where Morgoth has to like right. carry on like producing. You know, like him coming like I'm increasing your monthly orc quota. We need more armies. Like that that cannot happen. Like right. we we can't the, we can't go there. Um. So, um, okay. So, Brian, let me let me explain more how I think this robs the elves of free will. I mean, so okay. So we're talking about taking the soul of the elf out of the elf Hroa and sticking it in a new Hroa. But how does it cease, cease to be an elf soul? And if it's still an elf soul, which of course it has to be, because else how could it be a soul within the orc? Then how is it still not the same abrogation of... I mean, yes, okay, its body is different now, but does that change its Fea? Especially thinking of the relationship between Hroa and Fea, which is peculiar to elves, right? I mean, they have a... The link between Hroa and Fea is different with elves anyway than it is with with men, it seems. Like, with men, the Hroa yeah. is like the only thing... Okay, that's an exaggeration. But it's the major thing that connects them to Arda at all, right? When the Hroa and the Fea are separated, unless you're Baron or Turin, Turinbar, and or possibly Neonor, you you leave, right? You're gone. Your Fea goes out of Arda. Um, that's not what happens, and we see in more than one example. In fact, arguably, we see in every example eventually that elves get their they they they, they can remake their hroa or their hroa are remade for them. They get their bodies back. Gorfindel, of course, being the most obvious example of that. So, so again, so you can say that you could make the argument that elves, in the relationship between their souls and bodies. Is are like a transition. They're like halfway on the spectrum between humans on the one side and the Valar, you know, the Ainur on the other side, where the Ainur are like pretty much all Thea, and they can manifest a body, but it's just a manifestation. It's like clothes that they put on to their spirit, as Tolkien says. And you've got the humans whose spirits are tied to their bodies, and again, it's, it's only their bodies which anchor their spirits to, to, to Arda at all, right? And then when, when that tie is severed, their spirits go away. And then you have the elves sort of in the middle. Their bodies are not just manifestations. They can't disembody themselves at will like the, like the, the, the Valar can. So, so like the humans, they're tied to their bodies, but they're not tied to their bodies to the same extent, and they can, they can get their bodies back. Um, so it's the Fea, which is more sort of essentially what the elf is, and its Hroa is kind of fungible in that way. Uh, okay, that's not quite the right word. Um, but but you see what I mean? Um, so, um, I, I, this is why I'm thinking if you're taking the Fea of an elf and sticking it in a new body, I mean, you can argue that this alters this process, that in this process he's altering the Fea, but really, again, all you're doing is doing a different version of the original Orcs or Corrupted Elves argument. Um, it's just, there's, there's, there's body swapping involved, but ultimately, sort of metaphysically, I don't see how it's necessarily in a different place. Right. Also, it's it doesn't seem, it's, it seems like, seems like, any any attempt to explain this creates a loophole by which 
by which Morgoth is able to subvert free will. Even if it's like, well, by removing the soul and changing it somehow and then putting it in a different body, like, it all seems dissatisfying. It does. It does. Because, of course, uh, and because, by the way, there's, there's also the big question, right? The big question that many people have asked and which Tolkien could never answer. What happens to the spirits of orcs after they die? Do they go to the halls of Mandos? Do they have halls set very far apart from from the rest of the? I mean, how does that how does that work? Do they get a purgatorial opportunity? Yeah, and again, these are, these are sort of, know. Yeah. these are some of the questions that Tolkien that made Tolkien himself yeah. kind of throw up his hands there at the end. So again, um, does does um, um, does the uh, if you're just taking an elf fea, if you're taking an elf spirit. And infusing it into a, a mortal. Yeah, I'm not saying that there couldn't be some like cool but seriously evil necromantic process by which Morgoth does this. I'm totally not ruling that out. I, in many ways, I like this idea as a kind of compromise, um, but I am not convinced that it solves the pro- that it fundamentally changes the situation. So here's my here's my thought. How about how about this? How about we go in a different direction? How about we embrace the possibility that orcs have free will? If we give orcs back their free will, then we've solved the problem. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that we have to change the story. Right? This doesn't mean that, you know, we need to have, like, orcs, um, you know, like, have orcs at the Battle of Unnumbered Tears having the same experience that Finn has in The Force Awakens, right? Like, I don't want to be a stormtrooper anymore. I can't do this. I, I'm not saying that we have to have orcs having that kind of experience and coming over to the, to, to the, to the, to the light side, uh, you know, in the middle of, of, of the main stories. Um, because we can do... The, because, because they're slaves. Right? right. Um so during the time when Morgoth is active, right, and taking over Beleriand, the will of the orcs can be just overridden, dominated by him. And we can even show that, that they themselves have no real choice in how they are, that they are being, they are being pushed. They are being twisted. They are being, they are being held to this. And the same thing can be true with Sauron. Sauron can be doing the same thing with the orcs later on. What it would mean to give orcs free will, there would be two things that would have to happen. One of these things would not be a big change, because it happens off-screen, um, outside the main, the major stories, I mean. The other thing mm-hmm. would be a big change. The first thing is, we would have to open up the possibility that while Morgoth and Sauron are not doing their thing, like at the beginning of the Second Age, for instance, before Sauron sets up shop, we would have to open the possibility that there are some orcs somewhere who are trying to make a life for themselves and maybe even, you know, just not being recreationally evil anymore. Then Sauron comes back, and which means there would be the theoretical possibility that somewhere in Middle-earth, <clears throat> during the Second and Third Ages, there exist refugee orc cultures who are not evil or not thoroughly depraved. That would be a theoretical possibility. Now, again, as I said, this doesn't have to be a big deal, and it doesn't have to change all the stories because we wouldn't we wouldn't show it. I mean, by definition, they're off the radar screen, right? But we'd have to like acknowledge that that was a possibility. So that's one consequence of giving the orcs back, in theory, their free will. The second 
is the harder. And this is the thing that actually would, we would have to change stuff. And that would be, we couldn't just be pro-orc annihilation anymore. If the orcs have free will, and the Valar and or elves even suspect that they might have free will, we can't have them talking like the annihilation of the orcs is the goal. We have to have at least some of them acknowledge, at least some of the time, that maybe there is a possibility that the orcs could be redeemed. Now, I don't think that necessarily changes everything, but it's a pretty big change. And if we actually were to produce a show like this, I am 100% confident that people would accuse us of being merely politically correct and changing what Tolkien wrote just to try to appease people. But that's not the motivation. Anyway, not my motivation here anyway. Um, Yeah, Brian, it is an explicit goal. The extermination of the orcs is an explicit goal. Um, I mean, it's certain that it's it's made very explicit. It is... is, um, it is part of the promise that Olmo makes to Turgon through Tour in the early Gondolin material, uh, like in the in in the nineteen twenty six sketch and the nineteen thirty Quinta, for instance. Um, think about the times when you get references to things like uh, you know orcs still remained to trouble the world, right? Think even about the the reference that Tolkien makes in The Hobbit about goblins still existing in the modern world, right? Being responsible for weapons of mass destruction and all that and all that kind of thing, right? Um, so um, uh, anyway, um, uh, so I don't think we I don't think we lose a whole lot. I don't think so this. either. At least, at least from the, I don't think there's any reason why there can't be protagonist characters uh, who are who are explicitly not not Valar or Meyer, um, you know, elves, humans, characters like that. Even sort of you know acknowledging n- acknowledging that the narrators of things like The Hobbit are also those types of characters. They're hobbits or whatever. Like, I think I don't see why any reason why you can't have characters of that stature. Stating annihilation of orcs as an explicit goal because they're not, you know, they're not representing sort of a the the point of view of like the 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 um, you know the gods or whatever. They're just like people, and maybe they can look and say, you know what, uh, like they they don't really understand the sort of ontologic roots of the the orcs, and um, and they and they don't really care. They just all they know is like they're a big pain in the ass and they want to get rid of them. <laughs> right. I, I mean, like. It's yeah. I mean, the fact is, it doesn't necessarily. Again, this doesn't totally change everything, right? I mean, no. Marie Prosser point, ma- ma- makes a really point, good point. Like basically, in Tolkien, as she says, orcs can be killed on sight by the good guys, right? Like you can always know. There's never any moral ambiguity about killing orcs. And I'm not saying that by doing this, we would have to introduce a high degree of of moral uncertainty in killing orcs. It's not like, you know, when the orcs come upon them in Moria, the company would have to be like, uh, okay, first, let us conduct interviews and do character screening to see if the orcs outside shooting at us are really evil, right? They, like, they don't have to do that. Um, 
mostly because the orcs would still make very bad choices. I mean, most orcs would still be really bad people. Um, uh, just again, by 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 nurture, you know, by tradition. Um, the fact that they still act the way that they do. Again, it's it's re- it's almost just like the theoretical possibility. Um, they would know that the elves of the Misty Mountains are hostile and 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 wicked. They they do wicked things. Um, but you know what? I kind of the the more I think about this, you know what I kind of like about it. I kind of like the parallel that this can establish. The way that this theme that we're developing in season one of what it means to go to war against Morgoth and Manway's reluctance to go to war um, can be played out in miniature further on down the road. That is to say, you know, going out and, you know, Dave, as you say, setting as your explicit goal to exterminate the orcs. Um, that, that couldn't really be on the table. And as you say, Dave, it's never like it's a central tenet of the concept, right? You know, they're like, okay, our first campaign goal is to exterminate all orcs everywhere. Um, but, um, but nevertheless, uh, we, we, we'd have to basically making war on the orcs would be parallel to the Valar making war on Morgoth, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to do it because the orcs are out there. They are in fact violent and they are in fa- they, they, they have a very, very pronounced tendency uh, to evil, based on all of their cultural traditions and everything, you know they they will they will attack and eat you, you know, and they will not apologize for it, and they will not seem really torn about it. Um, again, it's it's just the theoretical possibility, and we and this w- we would also be sort of opening up the the possibility of a purgatorial experience for them. You know that mm-hmm. that Mandos could have halls set aside uh, for them if they came from elves. Um, Mark asks if we're going to see orc children. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that we'd ever spend time in an, in in like an orc, uh, uh, you know, village or anything. Um, but uh, but we could see orc children. Um, I, I could imagine a circumstance in which an orc child makes a cameo appearance um, in one of our story. Um, yeah, as Nick Palazzo says, in war you usually do kill your enemy on sight. Like, that's that's pretty normal. Agreed. Exactly. Um, uh, so... And, and, and basically, just about any time we are... Just about any story we're portraying... The, they're in. They're in what is what amounts to a perpetual state of war. Yeah, with, exactly. And with, and with and the orcs, orcs and the orcs are hostile most of the time. I mean, for, uh, I mean, the um, um, the uh, you know the, the concept of like that theoretically peaceful orcish settlement. Um, you know the like sub tribe of orcs, which is like trying to make their positive way in the world and have all become. Uh, you know, vegetarians, uh, like that. That's that's. We're never going to show them. That this never. That's never going to happen. Um, it would never happen because our stories are going to follow the narrative of Tolkien stories, and by definition, those are things that are way off the radar map. It's just you know, it's merely the theoretical question, um, and I think if we if we were to be theoretically open to that, that down the road, like in the fourth age after Sauron, um, 
could that happen? You know, could that ever occur? If we are willing to do that, then that removes most of our origin of orcs problem. Mm. Here's how I'd like to do the origin of orcs, I think, but we can't. I, I kind of i i think I, I think this is this feels like the right uh, the right direction to go in, rather than rather than trying to come up with some complicated hack of the orc origin story to explain away these things and keep you know and sort of maintain like a you know like this 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 is interesting it kind of gets at this this you know running debate that seems to be out there that i think is that i think is kind of artificial about you know whether tolkien's works are all just black and white and he presents a simplistic view of the world and blah 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 um like I kind of I, I I sort of I feel like we should avoid the temptation to try and hack around with things so it fits into that, yeah. You know, and that things are simple, and instead embrace like the ambiguity and the com- and the complexity that is actually there. Yes. For for anyone who's willing to see it and wants to see it uh, is actually already there to begin. With. Yeah. Exactly. So. So you're going to propose it, something. It doesn't change... Okay, yeah, so, so here, here, here's what I was going to propose. However, let me preface what I'm about to... The, let me preface the plot line I'm about to outline with the acknowledgement that it doesn't work and it can't, it's not possible. Um, but here's what I would... If, if, I, if, if we were free, here's what I would want to do. Um, other factors aside. I would like to have... Melkor, our Melkor, capture elves, but not orcify them instantaneously. That is not to make them twisted, ugly, and violent right away. Not see them merely as foot soldiers. Because what does our Morgoth want? Our our Melkor. He wants worshippers, right? Um, that's what he would see to be just as he sees that like the manifest destiny of Arda is to be his kingdom because he's the awesomest and greatest so he would see the manifest destiny of the children of Iluvatar to be his worshippers, right? That's just the natural order. He is the natural lord of Arda, they are his natural worshippers that's how things should be, right? Mm-hmm. So he's going to bring elves, but he wouldn't just be like let me experiment on them, he would be like, come, worship me and that mm-hmm. may or may not go well, right? But what I was thinking was, wouldn't it be cool if he didn't actually orcify them until he returns? So he comes back with his hand burned and the Silmarils and and, and the Silmarils on his and he's 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 embraced. Remember we talked about that oh. being a turning point. He's embraced the Morgoth thing. He's come back to Middle Earth and he's ticked off, right? So their their physical transformation sort of it sort of follows along with his. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, oh, okay, now I, I I don't just want to, like, rule everybody. Like, before, like, in season now one... Now it's personal. Right. He's like, I, I just want everybody to, to worship me. Is that so wrong? Right? But but he's not trying to just destroy everybody. Right? right. When he comes back, now he's, now he's, he's consumed he's with pissed. wrath as well as pride. And he's like, that's it. I'm going after everybody who's done me wrong. Uh, and I'm going to make them all recognize that I'm stronger than they am, than they are dug on it. And so he comes back to those elves who don't worship him still are like refusing to worship him. And he's like, all right, that's it. And anyway, he's really ticked off at the elves. So like his orcification of the elves would be like, a retribution against like Feanor and the annoying Noldor and everybody else. Like he's 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 was fed up with the elves uh, and envious of them, 
uh, in his time in Valinor, so he comes back and takes it out on these other elves and orcifies them. I love this idea as a story. Now, here's the problem. It totally doesn't work. Totally doesn't work exactly for reasons <laughs> that all of you guys are already pointing out. Remember I said at the beginning it doesn't work. It can't work chronologically for two reasons. First of all, there are orcs already. Like we we, we have battles in Middle Earth with the orcs, like remember Thingol and 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 Kyrdin at the Havens and everything. They're under attack by the orcs already before the Noldor return. In other words, before Morgoth returns to Middle Earth. So while Morgoth is still imprisoned and then um, on parole in Valinor, he's uh, the orcs are already in Middle Earth causing mischief. Okay, um, and the girdle of Melian is being established and everything. So that's problem number one. But even if we avoided that, even if we decided to make a radical change, with which I'm not enormously comfortable in saying, now nah, let's just skip those wars. Because goodness, if we skip those wars, what on earth is going to happen? Are we just going to have nothing other than flashbacks to Thingol standing frozen, looking at Melian? I mean, like we've got to have something happen. Um, so. Anyway, uh, so I'm really uncomfortable with the idea of removing that. But even if we did do that, we still have a problem. Because we need orcs for the battle under stars. As soon as Feanor and his sons and his people come over in the ships, they're going to get attacked in the battle in which Feanor dies. Um, So we've got to have orcs for that. So he can't come back and orcify them and multiply them and, 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 and have them fitted out into an army in a really in that short of an amount of time so it can't it, that can't that can't be with the orc the, the orc <laughs> process has to come sooner yeah so, i guess you're right yeah. now it's too bad but that, but that would have been nice right but the logical extension i mean the the thing and and this is really a thing which the silmarillion doesn't make really explicit sauron does have to be in charge I mean, Sauron is like. I was going to say that. I was going to say, is yeah. there a way we could bring Sauron into you know, make it Well, Sauron's he's got to be. I mean, Melkor's not there pretty much the whole time. I mean, right. we've got. Even, even in the, the, the narrative of the Silmarillion, um, of the published Silmarillion, we've got the, the taking of the elves from Quivienen and then the, the chaining of Melkor not that long afterwards. And then. Um, and then he comes back, and again, meanwhile, while he's back, so he's just, he kidnapped the the elves and did something to them, and now he's been gone for, for centuries and centuries, and meanwhile, they're already developed and formed into armies and, and invading and causing trouble uh, in Beleriand. Sauron's got to be behind that. He's got to be the boss man while, while Morgoth is away. Um, which means also that he uh, uh, um um, yeah, which also means that he is going to be in charge of the, or, or it's going to be very much involved in the the orcification process. All right, so where does this leave us? Almost Complete. out of time, and still not decided on the orcs. <laughs> And having discussed none of the plot points for either this or the next right. episode, yes, you know, yes, it does. We're stubbing our toe the same way the professor did. Well, I mean, that's why I said, I, that, and let me just say, does everybody see why I was so eager to keep kicking the can down the road? <laughs> this is why I didn't want to talk about this because I knew this is. And as I said, I wasn't exaggerating. I think this is one of the biggest single choices yeah. that we have to make in the entirety of the film film project. I mean, this is a huge deal. Um, this is fundamentally different from. 
Tolkien says this, how do we adapt that for our version of the story? This is a, like, here was a problem that was insoluble to Tolkien. How do we solve it and make it work within the context of our story? And it has such wide sweeping uh, implications. Um, And, you know, if this was actually a real show, this is the place, there would be so much controversy over whatever we do. Whatever we would decide the critics would say exactly what you just said. Who do they think they are? Right, exactly, and exactly. Fans well, it would be divided. It'd be great. It'd be great PR, but it'd be like a you know major social media storm. Yeah. Well, keep 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 in mind though. Keep in mind that as a TV show, uh, I feel like a, a topic of this level that the controversy would be confined to a relatively small <laughs> Yes, and, yes. Right? Like, the vast majority <laughs> of people couldn't care less. <laughs> no, no, that's that's true. true. You know, like, that or we will have turned so many people onto the Silmarillion by this time that we'll have a large yeah. fan. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, right. No, it's going to be, uh, it's like, going to be, yeah. Like, I don't see anyone... very vociferous. I see people arguing over, you know, changes to characters or storylines for Game of Thrones, but no one's ch- arguing over, like, a change to, like, George R. R. Martin's worldview or, right. like, right. the role of prophecy in the story or anything. Like right, that. right, right. Yeah, true enough, true enough. But that's okay. Uh, I mean, of course, the only critics we really care about are, like, the Tolkien geeks, right? You know, uh, it's okay. That's true. Since it is, since it is for the, for their pleasure and ours that we're doing this in the first place. Yeah. Now, I think this is a fit moment to return and take advantage of the opportunity that we do have to kick the can down the road. Um, yeah. Because what we do not need to do is to, to decide exactly how the process is going to work, and exactly because it's not going to happen now. As I said, no orcs are going to take part in the battle to be in the war to begin all wars. This is going to be a purely Ainur on Ainur battle. Therefore, um, we uh, clearly the uh, we need to lay the foundation of it, mostly because we have to decide when the elves are going to awake, whether they're going to be available. I say we have them awake early. Um, with my proviso of wanting to redo the story from the elf elf point of view at the beginning of season two, um, so that we can still really begin their story at the beginning and not have to distract the focus from the story of the Valar to the story of the elves here at the end of the season. As long as we can do that, I'm okay with having the elves awaken even in episode 12 or possibly the beginning of episode 13, or maybe episode 12 ends with Orame coming in, you know, bursting in and saying, holy cow, I found the elves, right? Um, you know, I, I'm fine with doing that. And that opens the door to this, but actually depicting the process, like the rise of the orcs, that's got to be a, a major subplot of season two, yeah. right? Yeah, I agree. And Sauron's involvement in parallels that. Which nicely parallels the story of the children as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, yep, yep, exactly. So, um, so, so we don't. So we don't have to. We don't have to talk. We, we don't even have to go there at all. We don't even have to allude to it, even vaguely. We just have to make sure we don't do anything that closes our options in season mm-hmm. two. And the best way to keep our options open is to have the elves be discovered prior to the battle, so that Morgoth at least has the opportunity. To uh, to draw up the blueprints of the orc project, which Sauron could then follow in his absence while he's busy being incarcerated uh, throughout most of season two. 
Um, okay, good. Well, that was a good, efficient conversation. Uh, let's. Uh, <laughs> that if, was not about ends. That was all. not about ends. Exactly. Uh, they're not wholly unrelated to them. So, okay, let's um, let's then go back to. I I feel better about it though. Though I've assiduously desired to uh, postpone that discussion. Uh, I feel better having had it. Um, even though we haven't made absolute firm decisions, I feel, again, I, to me, it seems like the way to cut the Gordian knot is just to, to, uh, to enable the theoretical free will of the orcs. If we do that, if we, if we enable their theoretical free will and therefore under certain circumstances, certain very unlikely and really never to occur circumstances within our story, redemption, um, then, then most of the problem goes away. Um, Okay, all right. Now, uh, where to go next? How to spend our last 15 minutes or so? Um, Let's talk about Yovana. Can we talk about Yovana? Yeah. All right. Um, here's this I okay I I have an idea about Yavana. I don't want to do the conversation between Yavana and Aule exactly as it's done in the book <clears throat> mostly because well Yavana seems really kind of stiff in the book which like is fine. I mean the 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 frame of that the frame of that story is like you know this kind of like conversation among the gods and uh, you know and her, but like you know when it's hard for me to uh, kind of understand. Yeah, I I I I want to have more meat in Yavanna's point of view is what I'm saying. Um, and that's one of the things what that we're mean? doing is kind of investing in these characters more, right? More psychological meat is what I mean. Uh, beyond, beyond, um, like what we get in the film, really. I mean, she gets she gets more than some of the other Valar. Well, certainly true. I mean, in that she gets dialogue and stuff at all. Um, uh, but there is there is some pretty interesting stuff about her reaction to you know sort of. <laughs> During the kind of the the intervening periods where the lights keep getting turned off by Morgoth, right? Um, like her her concern for growing and living things, you know, yes. like where where she goes and puts them into sleep and and then wakes them back up again and that kind of stuff. Right. The, right. the realization that the children that the children are going to be running around chopping trees and mowing lawns and um, hunting beasts. Right. Right. Exactly. So her 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 general anxiety for th- that's that is the the element, and you're right. That's there. That's the element that I would want to bring out a little bit more. When I say she seems stiff, I just mean like her dialogue, right? Her response oh, yeah, when yeah. when Alec comes back and tells her about the dwarves, right? She says, "Eru is merciful. Now I see that thy heart rejoiceth, as indeed it may, for thou hast received not only forgiveness but bounty. Yet because thou hiddest this thought from me until its achievement, thy children will have little love for the things of my love. They will love first the things made by their own hands, as doth their father." Um, we don't really see any like reaction, you know. There's, there's no that the. 
it's not that it doesn't work. It's just uh, you know, if our, our if our Yavana were to deliver that line in exactly those words, it would sound she'd sound like a robot. I, I think. So here's what I'm thinking, and uh, here I, I I appeal to the wonderful. Um, uh, suggestions that were made by uh, on some of the wonderful suggestions made on the discussion board. Um, so, uh, so okay, who was it who was talking about um, the uh, coming back to the 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 beasts of horn and ivory? Ah, shoot, I can't, I can't. There's so many. Even our notes on the discussion board are really long. Um, but um uh but anyway i i really i really i really like the um the, i'm trying to find it never never mind never mind never mind i am not going to be able to find it if somebody else finds it let me know um but um but okay yeah i like the idea that um we've met them before right these beasts um uh, that uh, th- we, we already had that scene where Tokus and, and Orame were, were were fighting one, right? In fact, weren't we paralleling? Yeah, we were. That was in the that was in the the Awakening of the Trees episode, right? Where we have light, you know, we, we sort of show in the episode after we have the separation between Utumna uh, uh, and uh, Utumno. Sorry, by the way, I, a blanket apology for me screwing up names again. I have Shaping of Middle Earth on my head, uh, Utumna. It was the original name of that place, and I and you may have noticed I keep saying Melko accidentally because he didn't get his R until later on. He was Melko originally, so th- this again I just ask for your indulgence as my brain is in several different chronological periods of the Silmarillion development. Um, so we got the split between Utumno and Valinor, and we were showing how like the fruit of Valinor is light and beauty in the trees, and the fruit of Utumno is violence and darkness, uh, as shown by these monstrous beasts that are roaming Middle Earth in the darkness. Um, so I, I I I I really like that. So so here was the suggestion: um, we have we start this sequence not with Aule coming to Yavanna out of nowhere. Instead, we start it with Yavanna in Middle Earth, right? Um, and she's uh, uh, Tim Tim Wildman, Tim Widman. It was who was who was, I was talking. I was going to say, this. I got it. You're you're actually positioned right right at. Okay. The, yep. Yep. There it is. There it is. Yep. Tim Widman. Great. Great. Yeah. I love this suggestion. So, and and Dave, this comes back to the passages you were recalling about Yavanna wandering around in Middle Earth and lamenting for the marring of 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 you know the her design, right? of the, mm-hmm. the, the birds and the beasts in the darkness that is in Middle-earth now. Um, so we have her wandering around Middle-earth, and she meets one of these beasts of, 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 of horn and ivory, right? One of these huge savage beasts that we had this huge like, drag-out fight between uh, Orame and Tolkas, because Orame's the hunter, and so he, he hunts it and kills it, right? Um, we have another one of these uh, comes up to Yavanna. But Yavanna, I mean, she's, this thing is based on a beast, right? She just takes... But she doesn't kill it, right? The, the kind of the scene that I was imagining was Yavanna sort of sadly, um, you know, probably even weeping, walking through Middle-earth and looking at the... looking at, like, dead foliage and and uh, and things and, and sort of planting seeds and, uh, and thinking about the future of Middle-earth. And then this huge beast comes charging... 
toward this huge monstrous slavering thing uh, comes like uh, charging and pouncing at her um, and Yovana just sort of looks at it and she looks at it in like horror and pity um, and I, I think there would be a really fun moment where we like show this huge beast charging at Yovana and we show her like shocked expression which could be mistaken initially uh, by the audience's fear right but it's not fear it's horror as she's looking at this thing, which she recognizes as one of her creatures that's been twisted out of all recognition and, inv- and infused with this malicious spirit, right? Um, so it's coming to her. She just, like, holds out her hand in front of it, and it stops and, like, falls asleep. She she just put the thing to sleep, because she's the master of beasts, right? No beast can, can threaten her, right? Um, so she just puts the thing to sleep, not kills it. I mean, I'm not speaking euphemistically. She literally puts the thing to sleep, right? She casts it into sleep, and then she's looking at it in horror and pity, and she's really distraught um, at what Melkor is doing to her creation. This leads to two different things. First of all, this is a foreshadowing of the Ents and Eagles, Right, the Ents and Eagles again are kind of like this done right. They're like the Huan version of the tree and the bird world, right? Um, mm-hmm. So her desire for there to be a shepherd of her creatures, something that would protect the rights of the animals and the and and the plants, and especially the plants who are helpless, right? Um, she so 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 this, this this and so she returns to Valinor, really distraught, really upset, um, and wanting for that. So when Aule tells her what he did and his making of the dwarves, I think her initial reaction is she likes it. Like that basically he was thinking along very similar lines that he was. Um, He's made the dwarves in large part. He wants to have learners whom he could teach, but also because he, Aule is now convinced that Melkor is uh, is evil and is going to need to be opposed, um, and that he wants and that he makes his he makes his his children and he makes them tough to endure. Right, he knows that they're going to have to they're going to have to to fight against the the creatures of of, of Morgoth. He's convinced of this, even if, if Manwe isn't convinced of it yet, um, and so he makes the dwarves with that in mind. So I would think that. Uh, and again, this seems to be, I, I think, even implied in the Aule and Yovana chapter in the Silmarillion. You know, her response to Aule is not like, creatures of your own, how could you possibly ever think something like that? She does immediately afterwards go and be like, I kind of want some, <laughs> right? You know, so um, so to so really for, sort of foreground that, to show that basically she and her husband are really on the same page as far as their feelings about Morgoth and his horrible evil and the need to oppose his evil uh, and to, you know, to, to, to have these creatures which will be, um, which will be, uh, 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 you know, a, a sort of a, a bulwark against the works of Morgoth. Um, but there still is that issue of, of, secrecy, of secrecy. I think that we can um, have her have this sort of foreboding. Um, or maybe somebody else tells her, but I think it would be even cooler if she foresaw it, um, that basically her own children and his children are not really going to get along um, in the same way that she talks about that in the published Silmarillion. But um, uh, but uh, but okay, so she sees the beast. 
Um, she recognizes that it's, that, that it's an abomination. She freaks out, goes back to Valinor, talks to Aule. Um, they share their concerns about Melkor, um, and she's thinking about uh, what he's already doing to you know to her sort of realm um, and what he could be doing in the future. He fesses up what he did. She sees that he screwed up and that that was not a really a good idea, but she's in sympathy with why he did it. Um, notes more in sadness than in anger, the future disharmony between her children and his, because he couldn't have, ke- he shouldn't have kept it a secret. That's what he screwed up there, as she says in the book. Now she would go and report to the other Valar. Not reporting on her husband, but just report her her outrage, her consternation. And the, the, this is one of the things that could lead to, like, the first of these sort of final series of discussions among the Valar, which leads which leads to war. Manway would be opposed. To, so she she now is coming, you know, so there's Aule. She and Aule both go to this and say, it's time. We have to stop Melkor. We have to strike against him. And Omo is like, thank goodness, I've been saying this for who knows how long, right? Um, and um, but Manway's still going to oppose it. Um, he still doesn't want to fight yet. What do you think about that sequence with Yavanna? How, how, how does that uh, how does that seem to work? I think it works for me, Dave. Uh, yeah, I think I I I I do like the idea of connecting the. I do like the idea of connecting the Yavanna sort of the Yavanna storyline to the the. Sort of larger mobilization of the, mm-hmm. the of the Valar to yes. do something about about Morgoth. Like like this is all sort of this this is all fitting into um, you know if we tie it we can tie all of this back to to sort of the the various kinds of rebellion stories we've explored yes. uh, over the last few episodes, and then tie it forward to a general sense of the Valar kind of looking up. From their from their contentment and bliss uh, to the world around them, and seeing like, you know, like things are starting to spiral out of control a little bit. Okay, we had we had a couple of these rebellions. Ase got a lot of control. Um, uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, we don't really know. I guess Aule's deeds aren't aren't broadly known. Although at some point they must find out, like when there start being dwarves wandering around. Right. So maybe we might even maybe we might have him exposed we could yeah. do that yeah no it, I, th- I think i think it should i think yeah 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 but, but i think and then i think yavana clearly sort of what happens with aule as you say maybe with what happens with with aule causes her to take a second look around middle earth and start discovering i like this idea of her encountering some of her creatures and finding that something's happened to them uh and her sort of looking around saying you know, like this Ase thing wasn't like a one-off, guys. Right. Um, right. We need to. We're the stewards and the custodians of of Arda. We're supposed to be taking care of this, and we're not doing our job. Right. And what about the children? Right. The children are That's coming, right. and and exactly. And it, you know, this is we can't allow. Because remember, the debate has still been in our story. The debate has still been whether or not Melkor is truly evil. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. This would be like we cannot any longer continue to ignore the fact that his influence on Middle Earth is is evil. I mean, it's it's harmful, um, w- such that 
he's polluting the environment over there. We can't we can't allow the children to, you know, come into that world. Right. We really need to take action. This was the argument in the Book of Lost Tales and as to why the war happens prior to the awakening of the elves. Um, but then once then again, you know, if into it, the end of a discussion like that, Orome bursts in and says the elves are here, they're there. And like the I'm worried that the creatures of Melkor are, you know, g- going to move in because remember, Orome has seen the beasts, too. Right. He knows that they're dangerous and that there are bad things there. Um so, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that I would want to clarify, I'll explain this more later. Um, and this is one general reaction I had to the discussion of the war and of going to war in, uh, on the discussion boards. I think that one comment that I had for almost everybody who was talking about this on the discussion boards, I think you're all jumping one step ahead. That is to say, the, 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 the question that you seem to be asking is, do we go to war now? Right? Is now the time when we go to war? But I think that's the wrong question. It's certainly the wrong question for Manway. Um, and it, I think that, it, it, and it kind of misses what I would want to be the central point of the culmination of season one. The question is not like, you know, do we yet have sufficient justification for war? That's the way we think about war, because war is already really prominently on our radar screen, right? But we have to remember the issue here is that war is not even on the table. The idea for Manway to lead an army into battle against Melkor would seem to Manway like a fall. Like he is falling. Yeah. Like that would be that would be becoming evil. Right? That would be uh, that would be overcoming you attempting to overcome evil with evil. Manway it's so it's not even it's it's not a question of do we yet have sufficient justification to go to war. The entire concept we might have to fight him should be alien and incredibly repulsive. Less so to others like Tolkas is fine with it. Right, but to Manway, it should be utterly repugnant and completely alien, um, almost against his nature, which is primarily to like establish harmony and to oversee harmony. To, harmony is what he's about, right? Making everything fit together harmoniously. To to ask the guy whose job is to make everything fit together harmoniously go to war, participate in discord, is something like an abomination. He's going to feel like he, he, again, he's the one who's fallen. Is he going to be able to help Melkor and help Arda by having them all fall into the same evil? That's Manway's argument. That's the point of view that Manway has to be talked out of. That he has to be convinced it's in fact necessary. It must happen. It's the only way. Um, and so so I, I just want to make sure that when we're thinking about the build-up to the war... That's the really crucial question, and and we have to um, we have to make sure that we do that. So, what I really like, um, what I thought was possibly the single most brilliant suggestion, which really means I should be able to attribute it. Um, uh, okay, hang on. It's the idea of. Um, um, 
the inspiration, the that the vision that Manway has, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the vision the, the the in the context of the ants and, and eagles, right? Um, uh, was it Philip who was talking about this? Um, was talking about how the uh, the vision of of yeah, because remember, there's that moment in the Alley and Yovana chapter when Yovana comes to him, and he has that like ecstatic experience where he like re-experiences part of the music and he understands it more clearly than before. And he comes back and he's like, "Oh yeah, totally ends and, and eagles. This is going to be awesome, right?" Um, the suggestion to take that moment, that moment of epiphany by Manway, and to place that at the pivotal moment. Um, where uh, uh, where that becomes the moment where um, uh, where he he turns around and recognize where basically it is revealed to him in that moment where Il- Iluvatar reveals to him in that moment. Yes, your opposition of Melkor is in fact part of the music. This is what it's supposed to have. You you are my inst- You know this is this is part of your purview. This is not this is not this is not a fall. This is not you screwing up. This is in fact what you're supposed to do. Um, mm-hmm. and that it's, so it's part of that whole big revelation. I really liked that idea. Um, I thought, I thought that was, that was absolutely brilliant. And the perfect answer to the question that I asked last time of how do we integrate the Ent and Eagles thing more fully into the preparation for war thing. And that's, that's it. Uh, that's totally it, right? You take that vision, that inspiration that Manway has. Um, and, and so then the, the the ants and eagles become almost like footnotes in that vision, right? Which which instead has this really has this really central place. Okay, so we still have a little bit of work to do next time uh, in thinking this through. Um, here are the questions that I have, and I'm like reformulating questions based on what we haven't covered. Um, okay, what we need is we need to agree on a plot sequence, right? We haven't talked about... The the one thing, the thing I most regret not having gotten to talk about here today is the meanwhile in Middle-Earth question. What is Melkor doing? What are his plans? And what does it look like? And in particular, how is Sauron involved in that? I had, a, I, I had one idea there, though. Um, what if the next move for Sauron in his... Uh, uh, in his, we already had him being given a, a guided tour of Angband, right, and being impressed by Morgoth's strength, and and thinking that he might, uh, you know, he, you know, his, his way might really be the best way. Um, what if the very first thing that Sauron does, the first action, which is like the first positive action that he takes, um, where he's essentially serving Morgoth, um, is he he's the one who reports to Morgoth that the children have awoken. He tells him about the elves. And that is what then leads to, which is of course why also he's the one who's ultimately going to be put in charge of the orcification process. Um, Right. Yeah. Okay. Marie, thank you. It is Philip's idea. I thought, I, I thought that was Philip's idea with Manway's vision. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. Um, uh, okay, good. Yeah, and Hakan was talking about something similar. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Okay. Um, 
so anyway, just a, just a random thought. But anyway, let me start stop throwing out random thoughts and start just asking questions again. So okay, um, I have a random thought. Random thought. Okay, what's your <laughs> random thought? Well, I, you know, one of the things that I really liked about the discussion was Philip's idea about, um, you know, having a shot with Manway and Varda, you know, looking on the glory of of Valinor with birds chirping and you know, yeah. pastorals and whatnot and then we turn the camp well and their back is to that so we're facing them and their back behind them is all that and then the camera switches to what they're looking at is all the horribleness in middle earth and i think that would be a great way to start the next episode just wanted to put a pin in that yes yes that's true and uh, we could actually hear play on um the abilities of manway and varda remember when manway and varda are together he can see everything and she can hear everything right right so we could actually play on that right we could have the two of them going up onto Tenequitil and looking out over right middle earth and have you know both like you know audio clips for her and you know video clips for him of what's actually yeah. going on yeah. in middle earth and actually he he also had um the music he said while we while we're facing them and we see the beauty it's morning by Greg playing when it shifts the soundtrack switches to blind guardian <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> love it love it <laughs> um uh yeah okay, so on with the questions yeah yeah on, on with the questions okay the first and biggest thing what's our plot outline going to be? Not like a detail, you know, not the detailed scene by scene outline, but, but we need to work out the events and figure out where we're going to break these episodes. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think we, we've, we've talked about enough kind of theoretical things this time. That was kind of my hope for today is that we would get through enough of the big theoretical questions that we could kind of get down to brass tacks and lay out, um, things in details. Um, you know the, the the plot sequence of both episodes in details, kind of like we did with the Asse, um with the rebellion episodes a, 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 a right. couple weeks back, um, where right. we kind of talked through the issues and then worked out the outline of the of the of the show of both episodes in the next one. Um, so, so that's that that's the first question. What give me your give me your your timelines? What's happening when? What happens in what order? Um, I, I, I did want to just also mention, because we didn't talk about we didn't get to talk about it today, but we'll definitely talk about it next time. I I find that several people on the discussion board were suggesting the idea that Aonwe should be sent to Melkor from Manwe um, with a message, possibly a summons, and that he should be uh, captured. Uh, you know, he should he should not only be refused, but he should be taken and possibly even tortured. I love it. Love it, L O V E that idea because uh, Corey Olson loves the torture of Aonway. Uh, yes, torturing Aonway. <laughs> Two thumbs up. Uh, because of course, I love the way that it that it anticipates the capture of Mythros. Fantastic, right. just great, absolutely great. Love it. So we we, we 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 can talk about that next time. But I am like, I'm ready to. But I also my... love the fact that I think it was Phyllis said, and being a Maya, he can just disembody himself right fortunately nobody has to cut off his hand yeah yeah right no dismemberment required um (laughs) 
Yes, but but a but a but a but a similar kind of thing. So yeah, l- love that. We'll come back and talk about that more next time. So so okay. So like, taking all of these things, um, uh, the discovery of the elves, Yavanna having her crisis and talking to Al, you know, her her crisis which leads to her desire for Ents and her sympathy with Aule, the big conf- the big uh, conference with the with the Valar where they say we really must do something. Aule's or uh, sorry, Manway's uh, reservations, his articulation of why war is an inconceivable, like an obviously not a good option here. The vision from Iluvatar, uh, the declaration of the future coming up, uh, you know, coming about of elves and or of uh, ensign eagles, um, Morgoth's uh, plans, Sauron's progress, the betrayal of something, maybe the uh, existence and location of the elves to, to Melkor by Sauron, Sauron being uh, hired as a lieutenant and sort of beginning to officially take up service under Melkor, um, the preparation, his preparations for the battle, getting the Balrogs involved again, uh, having the uh, the Valar decide that they actually have to do this. Varda making the stars, and uh, and then finally the battle, the chaining of Melkor, and seeing where that uh, where how things remain in Middle Earth, so that we can be ready for season two. And P.S. the frame, what's happening in the frame during all that stuff. We got to sort out all that stuff. So taking all of those things that all that kind of raw material plus any other thing that you guys think that we're forgetting about. We need to sort that stuff all out. In what order, in what sequence are we going to do all those things? And then, um, and how are we going to break it up between the between episode 12 and episode 13? And then the, my second question is about the frame. How do we do the frame? And, and where, more importantly, where do we end the frame? We've kind of, we haven't come back to Gilrein in a long time. She was, a, or, you know, the, her, the story, oh, yeah. like the Gilrein, Elrond, uh, oh uh, Estel right. stuff. We've kind of dropped that. Um, do, what what do we need for resolution? Where do we bring um, episode 13's frame so that we can have some kind of closure of the frame which fits with the, uh, the closure of the season? Yeah, that's important because that was gonna that that was gonna be a pretty significant um, yeah. thematic kind of uh, story. There, exactly. The exactly. We haven't revisited it really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those plus are the, those are the plus questions. as we have said, it's possible that this will not be our frame for season two. Right? We're not necessarily yes. planning on this for season two. Exactly. So we we need to we we need to be at least open to the possibility of doing uh, of doing stuff. With a different kind of wrap up. frame, yeah, yeah. We haven't yeah. firmly decided what the second frame is going right. to be. We could theoretically do Estelle again. I kind of lean against right. it, um, mostly because I want to shift in perspective. Right, since we're gonna since we're gonna tell the story from a different point of view in season two, it makes sense to shift the frame, right? If we, you know, if we don't have the right. same teller, um, you know, if we're not Elrond anymore, then 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 it makes sense that yeah. we have somebody else. Um, Plus, we're going to have to re- come back to Estelle, you know, for the Baron and Luthien story for sure. Um, yeah. So we'll we'll have to revisit him when he's older. Yeah. At some point. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, round about the age of oh, I don't know, twenty when he meets Arwen would be a good time to do the Baron and Luthien story. <laughs> I can't help but think. Um, yeah. So that that one's kind but of a gimme. What gimme-y. is it going to be? Season five or something? Six, Season four, probably. Uh, but oh, yeah, yeah, it's it, that's that's a ways down the road. Um, we'll have to talk about that then, because which means maybe we have. We do st- 
Well, that's okay. We have several other non-STL frame seasons in between. That's all. That's all good. Um, uh, we could do. Uh, we could do. We could do Sam. We could do. You know, Legolas and Gimli. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Actually, you know, the other thing is to. Um, we just. Gonna, I'm sorry. I, I'm just going to say this. I know it's, we need to wrap up, but. Um, the other time to bring bring Gil Ryan back is is in parallel with the Andrus. Yes. Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So um, we we probably do want to come back to that frame before Baron and Luthien. Baron and Luthien. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. That is before Baron and Luthien, isn't it? Yeah. Is it? Agreed. Agreed. Okay. All right. Anyway. Um, okay. Anyway. Yeah, it is before Baron and Luthien. Uh, the the story of Andreth uh, and Ignor culminates. Ignor dies at the at the uh, the Battle right. of Sudden Flame, the Dagor right. Bragalak, which is right, right. before okay. uh, right. the Baron and Luthien story. So, Andreth's story has come to a tragic. Well, her romantic story has come to a tragic end um, prior to the story of Baron and Luthien. Right. Okay. All right. Um, awesome. Very good. Uh, let's. Um, Let's. Uh, that's that's enough to go on with. Um, so think about the frame. Think about the sequence. Let's get down into into details of plot planning now, which I I I, I can I I feel prepared to do next time. And you guys already had a lot yeah. of really good suggestions. Um, so if uh, you guys on the discussion board could kind of continue ironing those out. In fact, I would I would be very happy to present uh, to everybody, you know, to our to our listeners, um, different models that you guys come up with on the discussion board, just to kind of slap them up there Absolutely. and say here's like version one, here's version two, and to and to sort of discuss those, that'd be that'd be cool. I know a couple of you have already done yeah. that. Um, I was looking at Mithluin and Hawkins' different uh, sort of descriptions of how it should go. So, um, anyway, um, I think that's um, that would be that would be all good. So, very good. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate all of your contributions. This has been really fun. We are gaining a lot of momentum here coming to the end so uh uh so thanks yeah marie i appreciate you doing all your work for me that's 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 exactly uh that's exactly the goal we're just the execs you know we're just here to 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 stomp on other people's <laughs> ideas not to come up with them come on come on creative people um uh get to work <laughs> thanks everybody appreciate once again all of your time and effort and uh thanks for joining me here today so i'll say thanks for listening and godspeed